Welcome to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell. I'm a talent management thought partner and results coach, wife, and mom. Talent management leaders are hungry to learn from their peers and want to hear about real-life talent initiatives. This podcast is for and by talent management leaders. My guests and I dig into successes, challenges, and lessons learned from a very practical, not theoretical point of view. You'll discover important insights about how to elevate your confidence and amplify your influence in a role known for being caught in the organizational middle. I'm thrilled to have you listening. So let's get going and hear the truth about talent management today. How has the pandemic affected you and your organization? Everyone has been touched in some way or another, and much of the impact has been negative. It's also had an interesting flip side in some cases, a more positive impact. Today's guest credits the pandemic as a sort of catalyst that's elevated his skills and outlook in important ways. My guest is Glenn Blair. He's currently Senior Manager of Learning and Development and Technology Operations at the Home Depot Canada, an organization with over 32,000 associates across the country. Glenn has a wealth of experience supporting and leading learning across several diverse industries, including healthcare, telecom, and retail. It was so great to catch up with Glenn, given he and I worked together briefly almost a decade ago. I know you'll enjoy hearing about how the pandemic, although difficult, has shaped his leadership. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome back to Talent Management Truths. I'm your host, Lisa Mitchell, and today I'm joined by my friend and former colleague, Glenn Blair. Glenn is currently the Senior Manager of Learning and Development and Technology Operations at the Home Depot here in Canada. And Glenn is truly a thought leader in his space. He's got a tremendous background in e-learning and learning technology, and he leads quite a large team currently. So really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for joining me, Glenn. Oh, Lisa, thank you. And uh, the checks in the mail. That was, that was a really nice, that was a really nice way to describe me. I appreciate it. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, it was a reason I asked you to come on the show. So, so, you know, really good to see you. And I think, you know, people are going to be really interested in, in what you have to say today. So I thought we could kick off by having you share a little bit about how you got into this wonderful wor- world of learning and talent management. Sure, sure. And it's really honestly started a long time ago. As a young person, even in the age of the, the, the dawn of Aquarius and the Apple IIe computer, I was really fascinated by the technology. Steve Jobs, I am not, but they had, the Scarborough board had these computers that were on big rolly carts. There were two of them for the entire school. And every day at recess, I would take that rolly cart down to the kindergarten classroom to actually show kids how to play. I think it was Oregon Trail. And I did basic DOS coding with them. I was like a computer camp geek. And so it's always been in me to be quite frank, like from, since I can remember, I always liked helping other people and educating other people. So that's kind of where it started. And then, you know, as they say, the rest is history, but throughout my career, I was in television for a while. I even found opportunities there when I worked for Eddie Bauer in retail in high school, I was like the staff trainer at my store. So it was, it's just always sort of been part of my DNA, I guess, for lack of a better term. And when I made a big shift from television into sort of like telecommunications, that's when I, I went into that organization in the operation space in the call center. So I was the guy that used to like talk to you about your bill 
And that went on for about a year. And I knew when I, I entered TELUS that, that that was not the end goal. It was to be in the learning department. And thankfully, I was able to parlay what happened to me in the call center space to a career within the learning function there very quickly. And yeah, I've been doing it ever since. Yeah, it's so funny that you have that call center background because you know I do as well. Yeah. <laughs> After I left teaching and I did that for a short time and then went directly into the training side as well and, and never looked back. So you spent some time after TELUS, I think you went into hospital for sick children then. Yeah, yes, I did. And that was like a uber rewarding experience. I had been a very loyal employee of, of ClearNet and TELUS, which it became in, in the early 2000s. But I kind of looked around and I thought to myself, there there might be something else out there. And Part of my nature is really to want to try and give back. So it sort of speaks to that whole idea as a young person. I always wanted to help others. And I thought, what an incredible way to connect those two things as part of my, the fiber of my being was to like be in a space that has nothing but the mandate to help other people and to set up from the ground up where there was like nothing in terms of online learning experience, those processes to be able to decentralize the development of the content using folks in the organization, nurses, doctors, or our instructional designers per se, and then to evolve the technology as well. TELUS gave me that sort of like spark. You, you can't help but learn it along the way. I, I went to theaters. Like I knew nothing other than I liked computers, right? But I was not trained in this. And so, yeah, my, my time at TELUS really helped to form the foundation for what ended up happening at Sick Kids in partnering with a team of three to launch an LMS. Never been involved in something that large. And then the content side was really my core responsibility. And by the time we launched that system in a, bit, a period of about two years, we had almost 500 titles in the system on day one, which is unheard of. We had the luxury of a long, slow burn to get the system launched, but all of that content was being built in the background by people who actually did the work. Yeah, the clinician. And, yeah. Yeah. So I created this decentralized network of people that were very smart in what they did clinically and put it into an e-learning system. So yeah, it was just, it was phenomenal. I, I, I can't believe at that point in my journey and at that age, I was just like given that kind of yeah. responsibility. So. Well, I still remember when I interviewed you because you were at, you were at Sick Kids, and I, I was trying to find my new director, senior, senior leader. And I remember being very impressed by that and really thought, oh, okay, that's quite the accomplishment. I wonder what you could do with a, with a large team of 30, which you went on to, to achieve. So maybe you could tell, tell me a little bit about at Home Depot, what you're currently responsible for and excited sure, about. Sure. I, I'm really blessed because I, I get to use the creative side of my brain and the analytical, like technical side of my brain that was grown earlier on every day because I lead the design function. And I also lead the operations function. So the health and maintenance and learner experience for our enterprise LMS and all reporting and analytics comes out of one side of my brain and the team that I love dearly that does that work for me. And then the instructional design group. So the innovation that's happening there, most specifically and proudly, we have really delved in, we, we've taken a big bite out of performance support. So we have devices in store that associates can actually carry around with them and it's become their online resource tool while in situ. So as a customer has a concern or a question, we're, we're purveying information to them vis-a-vis -vis this mobile experience. And that was so, really the, sorry, so it's like in, in the moment kind of support yeah. thing. It's, it's, yeah. it's just in time, literally, hi, which hammer do I buy? And then this performance support tool, which is gamified as well, which was a big coup for us, gives them that information in, in real time as they, they need it. And we're evolving that platform constantly, you know, COVID 
if I was to pivot, was an opportunity for us to really lean into being able to support our associates from home. So the Home Depot is a pretty traditional organization when you get down to it. Incredible place to work. It's a family. I call it a Tamley. Anytime I interview somebody, I said, you're entering into a Tamley. We're a team and a family. But one of my gravest concerns at the beginning of COVID was that we couldn't really purvey learning to people that were offsite. And we were all of a sudden, especially in the head office space, in this mass exodus, we were all working from home in a situation where, you know, the only certainty was uncertainty. We didn't know if we were passing this through the air. Like I, I envisioned when I thought about it a lot, I, you know, when you see a bunch of kids that are starting to learn to swim and they got the water wings on and they're slapping, there's a lot of water splashing all over the place and it's a lot of noise and, and movement, but nobody gets across the pool when they're learning, if you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of slapping of the water, but eh, let's get to the, where am I going with this? So I always thought of it that way. We were just kind of flailing. And as much as it felt chaotic, I immediately started to look at ways that we could start to get our associates onboarded during this pandemic without having to physically be in harm's way and come into the store to learn for their formative pieces. So all of the compliance and safety education. So I started making a lot of phone calls, my friends in IT, my friends in marketing, my friends all over the place. And I kept getting sadly, no, where's your budget? What's the value proposition? And I said, we're just trying to do the right thing. One of our values is doing the right thing. Another one is taking care of our people. And you know, they're not just words on the wall to me. I, we've all worked in that place Lisa, where you walk by it and go, yeah, that's nice. But no one even knows we what have, that means, yes. <laughs> right? And this is not that space. So I really took this, our, our core values to part in a situation that was untenable. We just didn't know what the next step would be. So. Long story short, I had all these conversations and IT's like, where's your business case? And finally, I had a, a bit of a record scratch moment with somebody whom I hold in very high esteem. And I said, you know, this isn't about a business case. There is no business case here. This is a values-based decision, pure and simple. This is how we are. This is who we are. And I'm not going, I, I don't have the luxury of time to figure out how I'm going to show, you know, this is a cost center item. It's not a, this is not a revenue center item. We've got to do this because it's the right thing to do. And I kept getting no. So that's a Friday night of a very long weekend of no, no, no. It felt like, like the endless Dear John letter. Right. Like, yeah. can't help you. Where's your bag of money? I don't have one. And I was brushing my teeth in my bathroom and I kind of got a bit misty. Like I started to cry a little bit and I thought, God, I can't believe in a situation where, where we need to be thinking outside of the box and in an innovative and to an end that is really important, which is, you know, I don't, I don't want to compare it to saving lives, but we were really trying to keep people out of harm's way. So I finished my tears. I finished my tooth brushing and I picked up the phone and I called a partner, a vendor partner that I've had a great relationship for a long time. And I left this psychotic voicemail, like <laughs> pretty much. Oh, I wish I could hear that. <laughs> we're now going to play it for everybody. No, no, okay. thank you. no, it's been burned. No, not psychotic, but just like, uh, you know, I'm so upset and I can't believe and you know, why isn't everyone like coming to my aid? And I don't understand. And I was really indignant and being my little boy. And I'm like, you know, stomping my feet and saying, why doesn't anyone help? I'm screaming into the void, like, please help and no one help. And I got a call back the next day from this vendor and they said, give me a day. I said, I'll pay for it. Even out of my own pocket, I just got to make this happen because I'm scared. We're scared. This is fear-based in a certain way. We don't know what's happening and people could die. And so, or at least be put in harm's way. If we can avoid it, let's avoid it. And the next day I got a call back and he said, I've talked to the, the principal. He said, give Glenn whatever he wants. And they had a system that they were piloting and, and trying to improve upon that we eventually leveraged at $0 
to be able to support all of the, our new hires. It, it ended up in being in the thousands of, of new store associates that have gone through this system. It's not integrated, it's scrappy, but it did the job. And, you know, the resolve on that is that I realized it was a watershed moment for me where I thought you don't need bags of money. You don't need business cases. You don't need value propositions when you're doing the right thing and you're empowered to do that by your organization. You just need people that want to help you. And so it was so, you know, it was so mind blowing once it finally, and the work that went on like hours and hours at night, weekends, like I, I did it. To get it going. I was so connected to this and so passionate about doing the right thing and helping other people. And now it's become a model for what we are transitioning to in our enterprise learning management system. We're on an old one. It's not cloud-based. It's literally duct tape and seaweed is holding it together. No offense to anybody, but we know it and we have to, we have to evolve, but this is, this has been a great case study. And will give us data, the business case that everyone wants for why we should be allowing people to work from home. Because there's always security reasons. There's always reasons about why this is a bad idea. But so when you talk about this onboarding, this external onboarding system with new associates coming on board in all those stores over all those months we were in lockdown, what is it a delivering mechanism more so like like a content, yeah. like it's a way to deliver the content and yeah. track it? It's, okay. it's a, it's a learning management system similar to what we have. It's just, it's outside our firewall, but we have worked some angles with it to be able to validate someone's identity to ensure that we have the right people coming into the system okay. without having to integrate with our core HCM or our core LMS. So we, in effect, are running two systems and we backfill manually. I have an amazing team that just says, thankfully, well, graciously <laughs> does all of that extra work in the background because they know it's the right thing to do. Because we do have to put it into our system of record, but the, the two roads shall never meet. And that's the only way we could get it done scrappy and quickly. Yeah. But we accepted scrappy that. and nimble. It's yeah. it's it's really a beautiful example. Congratulations on being agile, right? In the moment and responding situationally. Because yeah, this this has been this has been a year and a half plus plus of not being able to do business as normal and requiring new new tidbits of innovation and and kind of like well, scrappiness. I like your word, scrappiness. Yeah, I think we, we use it all the time. Right? So it's, it was scrappy, yeah. very scrappy, wow. and cheap. So, by the grace of other, <laughs> no, no, really, by the grace of other partners that just are in the same mindset. And I think that's the thing I love about the Home Depot: the people that are inside the building are of a certain mind. The people we partner with are of the same mind. Because within a, within twenty four hours, I had a yes, and I didn't know how much it was going to cost. And then when they said we're just going to give it to you, it showed up like how we do business showed up with the people that we do business with. It was, yeah. it was amazing. When I think about Home Depot, I mean, being such a huge retailer, I mean, I'm a, I'm a frequent flyer. So my husband, <laughs> Marcel, because he's a handyman and right. we have some rental properties and we were, and then we did a kitchen rent more recently. So, so we're there a lot, but during the pandemic, I mean, we were constantly ordering and going and sitting in that yeah. parking lot. And, oh, yeah. and those, they had to even pivot around how they got the work done, right? Oh, yeah. Package it up and get it out to the customers. And yeah. they did much better than some other retailers that I visited during that curbside delivery service. Yeah. Era. We, 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 we did a great job very quickly. Like there, I, I could share hundreds of examples all over the organization where COVID compelled us to do things that we always found excuses not to do before because we, I don't know how, how can I say it fairly? It's simple. We were only compelled to do it by COVID as quickly as we got there. We have big dreams, you know, fame, like right here's where you start paying with sweat. We were paying with sweat every day because we had to. But without that compulsion, it would have been a slower burn and much more methodical and thoughtful. And that's all good. But sometimes when the rubber really needs to hit the road, you find ways to get there without compromising 
your values and your look at the what the federal government was actually capable of, right? And getting that that urgent emergency funding into people's hands, like that alone, if, if the government can do it, right? So they say. But it is interesting. So so maybe tell us about you and I were talking in the green room about your plans for a return to office. What how is the how is the organization oh. handling that? Yeah, I would say very very planfully and respectfully and compassionately and. and you got to realize in Canada, there's about 32,000 of us. Only about 3,000 of those people are head office associates or store support associates, as we call ourselves, where the luxury of flexible work has always been something that I've been able to depend upon. Like I could work at home any day that I needed to, as long as I could make my day work. It was never an issue to work remotely. The organization has spent a great deal of time and care trying to determine what the complexion of our workforce is and being very compassionate about the fact that, let's face it, we got very used to like, I don't get up at 5.30 anymore, at least if I do. I don't have to get in the shower and brush my teeth and get to an office space. I can actually be productive and, you know, ease into my morning. So where we're, where we are right now is that there is a big project that's happening in terms of the air quality of the building and, and HVAC and making sure that we're compliant there and safe. So we, I myself, have been working from home since March 8th, I think, of 2020. Is that the math? So it's almost 20 months, right? And I am under no pressure to return to a physical space. I have been classified without getting into all the minutiae about how we've done it, but we have to be sensitive because we, we know that our store associates don't have the luxury. We need people in orange aprons in the store doing their work. So we're trying to do it sensitively and make sure that the folks that can take advantage of maybe a more mobile experience in terms of how they continue to work, we're going there and we've been very generous with our frontline associates around compensation and bonuses for, you know, being the kinds of people that want to help others and will put themselves to a certain degree, you know, in the path of some harm, COVID, by being in the stores. But to sum it up, I mean, I will probably be in a space where I'll never physically have to be there any set number of days right, or hours right. ever again. Has needed. Yeah. Right, right. And the studies are clear. We are more productive in this mode. I know it's a bold statement, but it's true. They get a lot more juice out of this orange when I'm sitting at home. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, there's a flip side to that because there's you know some of my my coaching clients certainly they they've struggled with that throughout the year with there being no line drawn between work and home and and so it's kind of hard to shut it off. I know I struggled with that early on when I went out on my own and now I was home all the time. So so you know needing to be very conscious and mindful about putting in a break, you know, you can always come back to it, but it is interesting that it's right there waiting for you at all well, times. I got to tell you, Lisa, I, I've been going since 7am this morning and wow. this is my break. Thank you. I've been back to back to back to back all day. And I'm thankful for the opportunity just to like hang out with somebody who I absolutely adore. Thank you for hiring me way back when you did. Oh and my come God. to me and say, I want you to talk about yourself. I'm like, what's happening? This is pretty special. No, only because you, I could fill the day back to back every day if I, if I wanted to. And I have to be, I'll admit, I have to be more mindful sometimes about taking time for myself and just breathing and walking and relaxing. But well, at the yeah. same time, you're someone who loves their work, right? And it shows. And so, you know, it's not always, it's not always a bad thing to, to be able to stay with what you love a little bit longer, right? No, it's true. It's true. On a, on a go train or, no. you know, get to the parking garage before whatever time. So, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, yeah. And, and, so, and know too that I work for an employer that embraces the flexible work. So I don't have to think twice about making an appointment for like last week to go for a CT scan. I can just do what I need to do to manage my day and make sure that as long as things are covered, I have the autonomy to be able to 
carve out my day without scrutiny or fear that I'm going to be judged for, you know, like, why is he starting at 6 a.m.? And then what, where is it's two o'clock? Where's Glenn? Like, there's none of that. Clock watching, no, we are all working way too hard for anyone to. Yeah. And that sense, of, that sense of agency does such a, you know, has such a huge impact into terms, in terms of people's motivation and their willingness to put in, you know, a bit of discretionary effort when it's really needed. Right. So I see that in, in what you're talking about here. So, you know, let's, let's switch gears slightly. And I'm curious about, you've had such an interesting career journey with, you know, quite, quite a few varied experiences in there. What's had the biggest impact on your confidence as as a learning as a talent leader over the years it, it, we're pivoting but we're not because i'll go back to COVID again i think that it's been a watershed for me i have found myself and it's not like i wasn't people-centric to a certain degree throughout my time i'm a people person but i feel like COVID has compelled so many new behaviors for me so i don't know if i'm answering the question exactly but i feel like I have found myself being much more charitable. Generally speaking, I find myself being far more empathetic, being out of the box in the way that I think about people and what they're capable of and stretching. It's, it's been a really, really interesting ride. And as much as there's a lot of noise out here, that's, it's, there's a lot of dark, like, I'll be honest, I barely watch the news anymore. I got to the point around the American election where I was watching Cuomo and Cooper and Lemon back to back three hours a night, every night for weeks. And I finally had to shut it off. I couldn't do it anymore. And th that, that dark got so heavy for me that I just had to stop. So, so first of all, thank you for that, that example of, I think about it as input hygiene, right? We have control over how much we allow to be input into our brains and there is so much dark and, and stuff. So I'm very conscious about just how much I take in because it can take you down a rabbit hole. Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It eats but you were talking about, you know, just when I asked you about the biggest impact on your confidence that, that COVID compelled these new behaviors and now. So what's the connection with the new behaviors and the confidence piece? I, I am far more autonomous in my decision-making. I'm a good boy, generally speaking. And Lisa, you know, when I work for you, I probably would have checked in more than one day two, And just because that's how I was wired. Now I have the confidence based upon the way my organization has behaved during COVID to be extremely immediate in my decision-making. As long as I know that I am mapping it to a values about our, our values. I can depend upon the fact that, and it has built my confidence to be more direct and I would say expedite my decisions. I could analysis paralysis things to death and I don't do it anymore because let's face it, we don't have the luxury of that time anymore. Now there are certain things you have to like be more formal and rigored in terms of your decision-making and when it, funding's involved, but no, I feel like when it comes to people decisions, my organization throughout this time not that they weren't before, has been tenfold putting the leaders of people in a space where they don't need to think twice. If somebody needs, you know, an extra week off because they're going to visit an ailing relative, I say, we'll make it work, take your computer, go. Like, and there was a time when there'd be paperwork and really, is that what we're doing? And now it's bye. Right. Yeah, and what's the impact been on engagement? Oh, through the, roof, through the roof, through the roof. As an example, we do a biannual now survey of our associates across the organization in capabilities for leadership. Our numbers are off the charts. And if I was to shoot my own worm, my numbers are off the charts. <laughs> like my, my, what we call VOA scores have been extremely high, like to the point where I'm, I'm looking for, you know, like gnats on pinheads 
in stacks of hay that are in a barnyard. Like I, I, it feels as if we have just been empowered to do the right things and it's showing up in terms of the way that people are offering us discretionary effort, being more flexible and willing to take on a little bit more here and there with certain, you know, like parameters so that we're not burning people out and the feedback that I receive constantly. Like I, I, there's an associate that I onboarded. Well, one of my direct managers onboarded incredible person who was going to be an instructional designer for us when it was on a contract about six months in a permanent role by somebody who was through attrition was exiting and going into his retirement phase came up. And I thought we have to find this person permanent employment. We can't lose her. We can't. And I'm willing to sacrifice my own deliverables in the ID space to make sure to give her to somebody else within my sphere in learning that this person stays with the organization because that's, that's what we need here. And, and it was a bit of, I was conflicted because I thought to myself, well, you know, I got things to do. And if I give this up purely because I don't want this person to leave uh, nothing other than a contract and we can offer them permanent position in a space that they're also passionate about, that's the right thing to do. And we did it. So she called me and said, we haven't had a catch up in a long time. And I want to talk to you t today. If I can, I just want to check in with you. And I had this amazing conversation with her and she, you know, to a certain degree, she kind of gushed about her experience with the company. She's like, thank God for you. And thank God that you engineered the way that you did. And I'm so happy where I am. And I'm glad I didn't have to look for another job potentially in 18 months. Like I'm here and in it to win it. And the, it's those moments when you kind of go, does it serve me directly? No, not really. I'm making a sacrifice here, but for the greater good, this is a long-term prospect for our organization. Well, and it well, it's, it's, it's that whole concept of, well, I'm fascinated by reframing and finding the gift in everything, even if it's a difficult experience. So in this case, you know, the gift is what, how it does serve you is, is it sounds like this deep satisfaction that I did the right thing, that this person is benefiting from that. And it's this upholding of your values. And then you think about COVID so difficult through so many, like it really has been tough for so many people oh in so God. many different ways ways. Yes. And at the same time, we do hear, it's been kind of beautiful because there's been lots of good stories too around, you know, how it, it underscored the need for connection, the the increase in empathy that many leaders experience like yourself. So, yeah. We were worried about our culture, point blank. I said, I don't know how I'm going to create this type of, as I say, family, when we've never met people. that I've now onboarded uh, within my broader purview probably about six people, seven people, one of whom I've actually met in person physically. Wow. The rest I've never ever, I've never laid eyes on other than like here. Right. And I thought to myself, how are we going to make people feel that feel without being able to be in a room with them? And I challenge anybody who is doubting that that's not possible. It is possible. We have such deep connection with the people that are in the space. And I don't know, sometimes desperate times and situations create a certain chemical reaction yeah. yeah, that doesn't require you're in the same space. I was so nervous about this. It was the first thing I said, I don't, I said, I don't know how we're going to keep this culture going because we're not, we don't, we don't even see these people and it's visceral. And I am a true believer in that experiential part of it. I'm telling you, I've been, I've been converted. I, I was yep. the hardest sell. You know, I think it depends because I do some virtual facilitation and, and I really try to make it very intimate, you know, instead of just boxes on the screen, you know, the organizations where they're willing to have their cameras on and they're engaged in ready learners that that works and so on it can be a little trickier with some other groups where they're they, they're trying to multitask behind a blank screen kind of thing but it is interesting like for instance i did a earlier on and i guess it was in the fall and i co-facilitator 
assisted one of the faculty at Adler with one of the, the week-long coaching sessions that they do. So when you're a graduate, you can go back and, and assist. And it's it really deepens your own learning, Glenn. It's just like the most fantastic experience. But talk about an intimate, incredible learning experience for those folks. And it was all over Zoom. And I really credit Brian, who's the faculty member, but you know, I felt it and I know they felt it. And it's, it's that you need that for people to have trust in their organization or if they're in a learning event, right. To have trust that they're, they're where they should be. So. No, for sure. And I, I, I wondered, vulnerability is something that's really important to me in the way that I navigate the relationships with the people I support and those that they support. And that was another one of those moments where I'm like, how am I going to be vulnerable on camera? Like I, yes, I did go to theater school, so maybe I have a bit of skill, but well, more than the average person who's been working in a space that's like a concrete box with the same, you know, got to make the donuts mentality, like that guy that got up every, the Dunkin' Donuts commercial. How are they surviving this if, if they can't, if they weren't really maybe great at being vulnerable when they had the chemistry happening? Now the chemistry has changed. It's somehow filtered through this box that we're talking on. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just, it seemed to work. We just... We were blessed to have a really solid culture too. And I would look at organizations. I think that's probably you had that beautiful foundation already in place. So, so I think, I think that's key. Cause I, I do know that, that for, for a lot of people, like the zoom fatigue is real too, even. And, and it's a been kind of, you know, meeting for me for like pre COVID too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just being sensitive to that, but I really appreciate that you've been able to, to still cultivate that, that level of engagement and connection in spite of going all virtual. Yeah. So. And it takes a village. Like, I hope that I'm speaking the first person a lot. So know that this is not about me, Glenn, as an individual, I am part of a machine. And so when I say I, 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 when I say I, it takes a village. And I, that's the first thing I said, the external elements I talked about earlier took a village of people that were willing to put in discretionary. It's not just about me. I just had a moment, like I'm going to cry and stamp my feet and then decide that I'm going to get this done. It wasn't me. Like doing it all like there were people right. no, I mean, who were it. willing yeah. right but i think that th that was the linchpin for us we we had a really solid foundation to work from and it's grown it's gotten better yeah. i think yeah really. tremendous tremendous so you know another question that i i wanted to to ask you it's it's not quite connected to this but mentoring i find mentoring so interesting i was listening to this really interesting interview in a, on a podcast yesterday with adam grant and it was she was interviewing indra newey who was the former chair chairperson and ceo of pepsi 20 years ago or something oh my god it was so interesting but she was talking about feeling that mentors find you it's not that you find them or ask them but anyways just just curious about you know what you've experienced in your career who's mentored you and how did that come to be well i i think of mentors broadly too because as I told you, I, I, I was really interested in education and helping others at a very early age. So I remember there are some really poignant educators, my grade six and thankfully eight teacher, Burry Adams was somebody that really gave me a passion for wanting to be a teacher. Like he was like the epitome of educator. I was blessed in the public school system in, here in Toronto to have an amazing experience. I hear so many horror stories about that, but we had a faculty. I had that was a just, great experience too. Yeah. Yep, like maybe it was the seventies, who knew? Like yeah. there was something about the seventies and eighties and we just had really great educators and not to, that's not to cast dispersion on what's happening now. The world has changed. We are in a universe on a world that spins, tides rise and fall, things change. People are different now. But I just, Murray Adams was one. We had a French teacher who was exceptional and just, they were humane 
And they were also great educators. I learned a lot. My father's another person, I would say. That guy was a, about education by experience. We were so blessed because my brother and I both, wherever my parents went, we went with them. There's not a holiday that they took by themselves when that was sort of more like a thing in like the seventies and eighties, like mom, mom and dad would leave you with the grandparents and they'd go off to like, you know, wherever Fiji and you'd be getting photographs when they got home. No, he took us by the hand everywhere we went, everywhere. And so I feel like sometimes experience learning and helping people through a process or something and making, uh, having them do it, learning by doing hard things or just by doing those things is really important. So a lot of the people that formulated who, how I do what I do, I guess, took that approach, especially my dad. I think as well at the hospital, Sue Tallett, she was the direct, she was the chief of education. She was a former pediatrician and she built the learning institute by all accounts at the hospital for sick children. And she was an exceptional mentor. I didn't know my blank for my blank when I got into healthcare, right? Like I, I was a non-clinician. No, I didn't. I, I was a non-clinician. I, again, I'm a dancer. I went to school with you. And so I'm in this situation where it was extremely rare for a non-clinician to be put in a position of somewhat authority in a space like that. And she was so gracious with me. My boss, Kelly McMillan at the time, at the time too, director helped really help me. She was a, I think she was a kinesiologist by trade, but she was an amazing mentor. I'll say yourself, Lisa and, and yeah. Trudy, yeah. you know, Trudy. when I had re-entered the, the retail space after many, many years, when I was selling, you know, like Farrell sweaters in the aisle at Eddie Bauer in like the nineties. So you helped me get my sea legs again in a company, quite frankly, that was going through a watershed, right? We, we knew what, what we were up against, where we were. And so you kind of re, re-retailed me, which I really appreciated. And you gave me a lot of latitude. So I'm not really, I'm meandering now. This is just a love letter to the people that have always well, been really helpful, but no, it's no, interesting. no. It's interesting. The themes that, the, the, you know, coming up from the, the people you've mentioned that, you know, sort of sounds like there's that, that trust, you know, to give you latitude that seems you know, right from your, your mom and dad and trusting that you could handle going where they went. And I think that's really fascinating. I don't know. Does it, does that show up for you as it well? Does, it does. And I think as well, I, I, I'd be remiss in not mentioning my experience at the Home Depot. I have a phenomenal director, Jane, as well as our VP of HR, who has a very interesting story. She's an amazing woman. Her name's Aliana and she came from CIBC. She retired. She was at that point in her journey. And she, I believe she came out of retirement to come to the Home Depot to lead the HR function. And at the end of the day, I worked her for six years, five months and 12 days, I think. And she just left and I had this really weird moment where I, I, I think you might know I play the piano, right? And every time, and I range as well, and every time I would leave a room with Alien, that Alien had been in, I was humming, and I'm also a theater geek, so I was humming Defying Gravity from Wicked. And I thought, I have to send her this love letter. To, I've just heard about your retirement, and I, I, I shared my experience with her, and I actually sat at the piano and I played the song because I wanted her to know that she spoke to me on so many levels, as a, especially as a people-centric leader. Our new VP is just as strong. I can't wait to spend more time with him. That person, Aliana, really had a deep impact on me. And I don't know if under other leadership, if I would have responded the same way. Right. Yes. Good point. Because, you know, things turning on its head. I, I was so compelled to do better. I was so compelled to be the best leader that I could be because of the modeling that Jane and Aliana and others at the Home Depot have offered to me. I just don't know if I would have survived it. If I was working for a different person, we'd all work for that person. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it goes back to that same strong foundation. It really sounds like it was firmly in place before COVID and only got better. It's like, you know, some really good relationships and, and trust already built and support. Like, it sounds like very collaborative culture. Oh, it's hyper, yeah. hyper. beautiful. Oh, you're so lucky. I love it. So, I, so let's, let's kind of move towards our wrap up question. Then, okay. I can't believe the time I'm like, wow. Oh, I know uh, I can. Yeah. Literally, right. Literally, Nothing has changed. Nothing has no, changed. No, you and I could go for hours and hours. <laughs> so, you know, I think people really enjoy this part when I ask people about the biggest lesson they've learned over their years in our field. Cause I just think. Uh, there's so many nuggets of wisdom in the answers. So, I, I know you're right. There's so many. One, I remember a good friend of mine, a colleague when I was at TELUS, when I got my first people leadership role. She said to me, because she had been a director, we came up through the ranks together. We both started answering calls and talking about bills. <laughs> Basically the same day. I think we were hired the same day. And when I got my first people leadership job, and she was already a director and been for quite some time, she said to me, Glenn, choose your words carefully. Because as somebody who leads people, they attach a lot to what you say. It's not like you're some, you know, like guy yapping in the background anymore that's got an opinion, but your words hold a lot. Words are important. And Murray Adams taught me that too. Your word's my father. Your word is your bond. So as a leader, I had to learn to watch my damn mouth. Like I really actually had to be very conscious about the things I said. I tend to be, some people have criticized, some people enjoy this about me. I tend to be somewhat visionary and I feel like everybody wants to know the deal. I, I get into the weeds and I, and I, I get, get my hands dirty and I, I roll around in it. And I think everybody wants to know those details. They don't. It's too much information. If you've ever seen You're in Town, the musical, there's this line in it that where one of these characters, she's a foil. She's basically a literary device. And she says, Something about, he says, what's wrong with this play? Like one of the protagonists says, what's wrong with this? Too much exposition. I am the embodiment of too much exposition. I have way too much exposition. If you're a writer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I need to learn to shut up sometimes and just give the detail, the, give the level of information that's required. And when you go a bit too deep, which I tend to do, and I'm getting better at, sometimes it can create confusion. Sometimes people think that my vision is the, is the law now. I'm talking about aspirational things. But when you talk about aspirational things in a broader group, the attachment that I was warned about is that this is happening. Yes. Like, oh, oh. No, that's not remotely what I said. I said, yeah. I would love to get there, but you're all like talking in the background about how I'm crazy because now I'm saying, well, I'm saying this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's where I'd like to see us go, but I'm not saying we're going to get there and how yet. So I got to watch it. And so that's the most valuable thing that anyone ever told me. And I still stink at it sometimes, but when I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it and I stop myself. Well, uh, it's such a great example of a lesson learned that's powerful because it is interesting, right? The power of words and and how much people put authority against those words, right? So if you are in a leadership role, because I mean, I've had senior leaders like C-suite be confused and frustrated that their people have spun a bunch of wheels investigating something that they were like, I just mentioned it in a meeting as an idea I thought maybe might work. And they went and spent all this time on thinking, well, yeah, because you're the CEO or the CEO. Like, so you know, they, they think it's an order unless you explicitly say, I'm just kind of dreaming a bit here, yeah, yeah. not looking for anybody to move. You do have to be explicit. So the positioning is important. Yes, it, it <laughs> certainly is. Well, thank you so much for, you know, coming on today and for your time and, and stories. It's been such, such a delight. And I'm just oh. glad that we got a chance to catch up as well. Oh, thank you. Me too. You were far too kind.
<laughs> you were far too kind. But I, I, as I said, this was just a delightful break in my day. I'm so glad we got the opportunity. And I'm, I'm very honored that you would call me to ask. So I appreciate that. Just a little old me doing my thing over here. And, my play, you know. Well, you, got, you bring a lot to the table. So I think you d- deserve a platform for it. Oh, oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your colleagues. Better yet, head over to iTunes and let us know. When you subscribe and leave me a five-star review, not only do I glow from within, but more people will learn about the show and why they should listen. Until next time, keep telling the talent management truth.